go ahead and turn to God's Word. Uh, if you open your bulletin, you'll notice that I am not Chuck, and we are not going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 20 today. Okay, so Chuck called me this morning, and he uh, is under the weather. So we're going to be looking at a different text this morning. We're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 24. Uh, you can be praying for him, nothing serious, but just wasn't able to come to church today. Um, so Luke chapter 24, uh, this is uh, the road to Emmaus. Many, many of you that have read your Bible um, will know this text. This is actually a pop quiz too to make sure that you're doing the Bible reading plan because this is coming up. No, I'm just kidding, it's not. Um, one thing to know, you know, whenever anyone who stands here in this pulpit at Christ the King, over the years you'll probably have noticed this. They're going to preach a very similar message, right? And the text may be different. The passage may be different. The theme of the sermon may be different. But in the end, we pretty much are pointing in the same direction. Wherever we are in Scripture, it will eventually point us in one place to one man. I'm going to ask you the Sunday school question. Who is the one man that it points to? And you can answer, who is the one man? Jesus. Yes, that is correct. It is Jesus. So I think it's good even for us in the midst of 1 Samuel, in the Old Testament, many years before Jesus came to the earth, to be reminded of this, right? We talk about it every week, even in 1 Samuel. But any time that someone stands here, we are going to preach Christ and him crucified because that is at the heart of of Christianity. And it's not because we're trying to be creative or we're trying to copy Tim Keller or whoever else does it really well that we listen to during that week, but we do that because we really believe that this is what the Bible does. That it points to a man that is coming, a Savior who is coming. And after he comes, they're pointing back to say, look at the Messiah that has come. So God's Word itself points to the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ, from beginning to to end. So we're going to look this morning at Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 13 through 27. The text will be up on your screen. Uh, it's not in your bulletin, but if you have a physical Bible or your phone, you can turn there with me. Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 13 through 27. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them said, Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women, some of the women in our company amazed us. 
They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to hear, slow, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation that you have given to us, both in the written word and in your son, Jesus. Father, as we come to this text today, we pray that we'd come with humble hearts, knowing that we are fallen, that we don't understand as we should, that we don't turn to you as we should, but in this time that we would be changed more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So one of my daughter's birthdays is right around the corner. Um, Haven was born on leap year, uh, leap day, uh, in, uh, eight years ago, uh, this coming month. Um, and we're a family that loves to really celebrate birthdays, um, really big one. You know, I have a very vivid memory, um, when Alice and I were dating, we started dating in the fall and it got through October. We passed Halloween and got to November. And she said to me, the first text, it's my birthday month. It's your birthday. What? It's your birthday today? I'm like, oh no, like racing, right? It's my birthday month. Her birthday is November 20th, right? Okay, so it was 20 days away. A family that really likes to celebrate birthdays. And whenever our kids were really little, we started a routine, and I regret it uh, to this day still. Um, But how it went was if it was Haven's birthday, you know, they're 15 months apart, so they're really close. Haven was turning four. um, Say Haven's turning four, and Emma's five at the time. Uh, Well, we would get a bunch of presents for the one daughter whose birthday it was, and then we'd get one present for the other daughter, okay? Over the last couple years, we tried to break this routine. How do you think that went? Horribly, yes, that is correct. It did not go well at all, right? As you can guess, it did not go over well. And the phrase I kept saying to, I'm not going to name who it was, right? The other daughter whose birthday it was not was blank, we love you, but today it's not about you. And I would say that over and over again like a parent does, right? It's like 10, 20, 30 times over and over and over again. This day is about celebrating your sister. It's not about you. And obviously, many tears were shed. Grumpy face remained as all the presents were unwrapped, and it was difficult for all of us, right? It's difficult for my daughter to hear it's not about you. And you know, in that moment when I'm being honest, this doesn't hit too far from home, even in my own heart. Sometimes I give my children a gift, and they're not very receptive of that. In the back of my mind, I don't say this, but I think to to myself, you should be appreciative of what your father has given to you because I'm a good dad. Right? That's where I go. I'm a good dad. I'm loving you well, so why aren't you happy? In a lot of our life, we do things that are very similar to that. We put ourselves at the very center of the story. 
In the same way, when we open our Bibles, we often will have that very same assumption. We often read the Bible thinking it is written to us. It's all about us. Thinking forward to 2024. And think about a few ways that we can, this can play out, right? First, maybe in my own life, I know that often I've treated the Bible like a life raft. Okay, so I'm going through a really difficult season. I'm drowning, right? I, I'm like, I cannot go on. So I grab up to the Bible and say, oh, I really need help. Maybe deciding if I should take a new job or buy a new... I'm not taking a new job. Don't ever... Don't, you didn't hear that at all. I'm staying here forever. I'm talking about you, not me, for that one illustration. Okay. <laughs> this is what happens when you prep at 7 a.m. the day of a sermon. Okay. <laughs> Think about tough decisions. Am I going to buy a house? What, kid, what school are my kids going to go to? Sometimes tough decisions, so I grab onto the scripture, right? Other times we look to the Bible to help us grow in our Christian walk. How do I pray? How do I treat my neighbor? In other words, the pro- often we'll come to the Bible as primarily an instruction manual, a way to guide my life. Now, if this is our normal mode of coming to the Scripture, we're going to misinterpret a lot of what the Bible says. Now, the thing is that you can go to the Bible in all these circumstances. I would actually say as your pastor, you should. You should go to the Word if you're having a hard time or if you're making a tough decision. You should do that. But if our primary lens for viewing the Scripture is that then we're going to misunderstand the Bible itself. What we see in the scriptures is that the Bible is not about us, but it's really all about Jesus. From Genesis 3 forward, it has pointed to forward to a time where a Messiah would come. The Word incarnate, the Son of God, Jesus, would take on flesh. So this morning we're going to look at a passage where Jesus interacts with the people. After he has died and he explains to them what the scriptures are all about. Okay, so the big idea for today is the word of God is centered on Jesus Christ. We're going to look at two different things. First, we're going to see how Jesus uses the word. And secondly, we're going to see that Jesus is the word. Okay, so let's go ahead and look at the text. Jesus uses the word. So what happens in this narrative? Okay, so two disciples are walking and obviously they're upset, right? It says they are upset in the text about what had happened to Jesus. And as they're, they're walking and talking, Jesus enters into the conversation, right? He, he joins them in their walk. And in verse 17, it says this. And he said to them, speaking of Jesus, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? They respond in verse 18 by asking Jesus a question. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Okay, in other words, why are you guys upset? Have you not seen what happened in Jerusalem? Everyone knew, right? It was a public mockery. It would have been a, everyone would have known about what happened to Jesus. It was not something that was quietly done, but it was a public mockery. But Jesus enters in. He says, what's what's wrong? He's listening to them. He goes on in verse 19. He says this. He said to them, what things? They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. 
and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Well, we have had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Okay, so Jesus asks for more information. Obviously, he knows. He knows what happened. It happened to him, right? He knows. But still, he wants to hear the disciples speak. He wants to listen to their cares and their concerns, right? So in verse 19, he says, what things happened? He asked the disciples to share what happened. He's opening the door to listen to his people. What has brought this sadness upon you? He wants to hear it from them. They explain they have followed this man named Jesus. He was a prophet mighty in word and in deed, is what the text tells us. Yet, their own chief priests, the people whom Jesus came to save, delivered him up to death. We've talked about this a lot. They thought that he was coming to be the Messiah. But these people said if he has been crucified, he couldn't have been the Messiah. They were not understanding We thought this was the promised Messiah of Israel to come. But they were disappointed because they were he was not what they expected at all. He goes on in verses 22 to 24. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were not with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. So I tell Jesus that some women, they later went to the tomb. And disciples later went and followed. And his body is not there. It is gone. Notice that many have pointed to the first account of Jesus being absent. It is the women who see a vision of the angels who said he was alive. And this would have, C.S. Lewis was actually converted because of this fact. I don't know if you've heard that reality. But it was invalid. The statement was invalid if it came from a woman at the time. That's not good, right? But that's a reality of the cultural spot they were in. And it is women who come first and then the disciples to go see. And he goes on in verse 25 and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Okay, so everything leading up to verse 25 is what is kind of introduction into what he really gets at. And this is really what I want us to see here. So Jesus begins by coming into the conversation. He asks a bunch of probing questions, even though he knows all the answers. He wants to listen to the people. He listens to their despair over what had happened. But here in verse 25, he goes from listening and probing to instructing. This is where it changes in verse 25. Jesus begins by rebuking them in verse 25. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Now, it's interesting, right? Think about what he rebukes them for. He does not rebuke them for not believing the witness of the women. He doesn't rebuke them for not recognizing him, like we might think. If I came up to you in the mall, I would hope that you would recognize me, 
right? Probably not the mall. It's kind of a dated. Um, at Starbucks, right? <laughs> if I come up to you at Starbucks, even I wear a hat during the week uh, most of the time. A lot of times I've run into you guys, and you're like, oh, I didn't even recognize you. I'm like, yeah, I'm a kind of normal person. I wear this on Sunday, but I wear a hat every other day of the week, right? But I walk up to you at Starbucks, and I think, oh, you should recognize me. It's kind of strange if you wouldn't, right? So, but here, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for not recognizing him. But what he does do, look at this. He corrects them for reading the scriptures without understanding how it points to him. Jesus explains himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. That's what he does. That's what he gets onto him for. He says, I am rebuking you because you do not understand the Messiah that is to come. It is me. Now we get a glimpse of hope. This is kind of where we are in the Old Testament. We get a glimpse of hope of the Messiah to come in the Old Testament. Messiah is coming. There's many, many different areas of the Bible that points forward. There's a promised Messiah coming. Think specifically of Messianic Psalms or the Son of Man that is pointed forward the book of Daniel, Isaiah, we looked at this over Christmas, many different prophecies in Isaiah. Jeremiah foretells of a new covenant. And even as we will see in the coming months, the covenant with David tells of an everlasting kingship that will come. Now when Jesus explains himself, it doesn't tell us which prophets he refers to. It just says he goes back to the scripture and says, look, this is how I have fulfilled it. But maybe we think of Isaiah 52 and 53. Remember over Christmas, Chuck said that he preached this text and he said that I can hardly even say any words about this text because it is so profound. It speaks for itself. Jesus asks a rhetorical question. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus shows them that God's Son, who is portrayed throughout the Old Testament as a suffering servant, the Son of Man, the Christ, the prophet from God, these were all one man pointing forward to Jesus coming. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One from whom men hid their face He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And this is what you need to hear. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus is showing them in the scriptures, I am the fulfillment of the promise of a Messiah coming. How does he do it? He opens the Bible to the Old Testament. He says, it all points to me. It has always pointed to me. The text tells us he begins with Moses and all the prophets. He shows these men in the story of redemption. It climaxes with the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. They were doubting that he was the Messiah sent to redeem Israel. But Jesus shows them in the scriptures that they were pointing to him coming if you step back from the text a little bit i think we need to to look at the idea or think about the idea and it's really important to notice that jesus himself how does he use the bible 
How does he use it? I would argue that he uses it as authority for his instruction. That God's Son uses God's Word to instruct God's people because he is the God, Word of God incarnate. What we see is that Jesus uses the Bible as authority. He points to the Old Testament to show how he is the promised Messiah. This is the proof. To show the entirety of the scripture has been pointing to him. Jesus is showing that the people are to understand the grand narrative of scripture is coming together with this one man, him. The life, the death, the resurrection of God's own son, Jesus. So Jesus uses, the first thing I want you to say is Jesus uses the word. The authority of the Bible, if you don't know this, the authority of the Bible is actually the first thing that goes out the window when any person or any church goes outside of what we would call this orthodox stream of Christianity. You can say that, well, I don't think the Bible is lining up with this cultural value, this one or this one. It's one in our time in 50 years. It will be a different one in 100 years. It will be a different one, right? When we decide that the authority of the Bible goes out the window and we are the authority, we are now placing ourselves at the center. I am now the authority. But Jesus himself in the text uses this as the authority. The second thing I want us to look at is that Jesus is the word. He not only uses the word as authority, but he is the revelation of God. He is the word incarnate, that he is the authority. You know, looking at John chapter 1, when Jesus is described in the beginning of the Gospel of John, do you know the language he uses? Somebody say it out loud. What's the language that John 1 uses for Jesus? The word, right? Logos. It could literally be translated like a word, right? But he is the word of God. He is the revelation of God. The God's word is often understood in the Old Testament as a powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. Let me say that again. The God's word, this idea, so thinking about the people that John was written to, they would have heard the word logos, word, and thought a powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. That the Old Testament word reveals God to creation. It revealed God personally to the people. And here in John 1, we see that Jesus himself is called the very same thing. He is the powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. He is the ultimate personal revelation of God to his creation. So Jesus is at the center of the word. And we think that we might be repeating ourselves sometimes. Even Marcos, I was talking to him this morning. He's like, we can kind of copy and paste the last like paragraph of every sermon and just put it on the next one, right? And it is like a joke, right? But the reality is that everything is pointing to him. It may point in a different way, but it all points to Jesus. So you can see the text where we are today, right? That Jesus himself uses the Bible to show that he is the center not only that, when he is described by the gospel authors, he is explained as the revelation of God. 
the word incarnate. So what do we do with this today? I want us first to see Jesus' own use of the Bible, that he has ultimate authority. Jesus himself does. But he uses the word of God for his reasoning. That God's word is the ultimate truth that stands above any cultural reality that comes and goes. So for you and me, we need to see the truth is not inside of us somewhere. It's not out there somewhere that we can't find. It is here in God's word. We live in a broken world. Sin has fractured all of creation. You can look in a lot of different places for good truth. It always has to be measured by this. Always. We must look to God himself that is found in his word for truth. Secondly, understanding the Bible with Jesus at the center helps us to read all of Scripture, not as a book of things that you need to do or a life that you need to strive for, but a book of what has been done for you. In other words, the gospel is not about what you must do. We say this all the time, but I need to hear it every week. I'm sure you do too. The Bible is not a book about what you must do, but what has been done for you. The scriptures point to the work of Jesus on your behalf. And the Bible points to Jesus because he does for you what you never could have done on your own. That you don't have enough willpower. You don't have enough inside of you to turn to him. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God shows his love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Despite our rebellion against him, God sent his son to fulfill the requirement of the law. Not only did he live a perfect life, he was murdered. He was crushed, the text tells us, by his very people, taking the penalty for our sin. But death could not hold him. They go to the grave, the women see it first, and it is empty because he has rose on the third day, beating sin and death once and for all. The word of God, Jesus, God's very son, is the one who comes to save his people. And when the Bible points to Jesus, like we say it does all the time, it shows the work of God's son on your behalf. And when you have faith in him, his work is placed on your scorecard. You're clothed in his righteousness. That's the beautiful thing about Christianity. It's a lot about resting. It's like pretty much all about resting, right? And turning to him. Looking to Jesus for what he has done for you. My hope for you and for me is that we would see Jesus, the word made flesh, and run to him all of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we did not deserve you to send your son. And yet you saw our desperate need for saving you loved us enough to send your son to fulfill the law on our behalf and to be crushed for us. Father, we do pray for ears that would hear, for a heart that would be open to knowing that we need you each day, each moment. Father, help us to turn each day to you. Father, as we come to this, your table, we do pray that we would come with Uh, Humble hearts knowing that uh, you have saved us in the way we even desire often now. Father, be with us now. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.